The worth house is a symbol that old matters, that small matters, that details matter, that good design matter. And uh, it, it is a beacon back to what Roosevelt Row was at one time. Welcome to the 18th episode of On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This podcast is a place where you can come to meet the creatives and newsmakers taking this metropolis to the next level, a place where you can learn what's really happening in Phoenix. My name is Philip Haldeman, and I'll be your host. This episode of On the Grid is the Kimber Lanning journey. Kimber might be the perfect manifestation of an On the Grid guest. She spent most of her life in the Valley and from a very young age started contributing to the character of the Valley. At the young age of 19, she opened local independent record store Stinkweeds and later opened venue slash art gallery Modified Arts and then formed nonprofit Local First. From music to economic development, you'd actually be surprised to learn how flawlessly connected these things are. And keep listening to the conversation because... We have some new information about the Worth House, a more than 100-year-old structure that Kimber saved from demolition. Let's just say it's got a bright future ahead of it. Kimber, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Cool. So uh, you are an Arizona girl, pretty much. So you actually you were born in Hawaii, right, did you say? No, Okinawa. Okinawa. Yeah, so... it's a small island off the coast of Japan. Okay. Military? My father was okay. in the Air Force, yeah. He okay. was a jazz musician who was drafted and sent to Vietnam. So, cool. yeah. I but, see the musical. You know, I, mostly, I was raised by a jazz musician father and an art gallery owner mother. So, hmm. very creative household. Nice. Yeah. So then what brought you out to Arizona? He was transferred to Luke Air Force Base. So I grew up at 59th and Northern, went to Apollo High School, and okay. uh, then headed out east to go to ASU. Okay. Uh-huh. What'd you get a degree in? What were you What were you What were you shooting for? As uh, you were well, I turning? started in architecture. Okay. And then I switched to social work and Spanish, and then never finished. So I opened Stinkweeds when I was 19. Oh wow. Yeah. So I opened Stinkweeds in 87. So I kind of I graduated from high school early and and spent two years in college before I decided to open the store instead. Was the record store something that you had always wanted to do? You were always into music. Oh. Obviously, you're you had a jazz musician, so. I guess it was just always around, no? Always. I mean, our living room was full of giant speakers and all my dad's jazz records. I mean, I was listening to John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Oscar Peterson uh, from a very young age. And I had my own first, I have a funny picture of myself in my little footy, you know, my footy uh, pajamas with my first record player. And uh, I was four and uh, I used to play my records over and over and over and make my parents crazy. They were like, oh my God, are you really going to play Rhinestone Cowboy for the <laughs> 480th time <laughs> so it was I don't remember it not being and then um, I got my first job at Zia Records when I was 15 and uh, essentially the then owner of Zia said uh, that he wouldn't make me a manager because quote no one will listen to a hundred pound woman so uh, I think you get sued for that these days yeah. but back then it was like okay well then I'll open my own record say, store you so. say screw you yeah. And yeah. And we, ended up, we ended up, he came around. And we, ended up, we, we ended up being friends all you know the way what? until he passed away. So. You know what? People can change, you know? That's a good thing. Well, know? he actually told me that I was the biggest mistake he ever made. So, nice. uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't know if he ever thought Stinkweeds will never make it. I mean, 19 year old kid uh, signing a new lease, but I worked all day every day for <sighs> two to. years for about 500 bucks a month. And uh, that's what it took to get it off the ground. When did it open? When did 87. It open? 87. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next is modified, I guess, you know, because that's, you were like, well, now I need a place to 
to have local and, and touring acts, basically? Well, basically, those two things were very much connected. Right. So um, Stinkweeds moved into Tempe. We were at Patchy and Dorsey, and um, we put a stage in. And we started doing all of these shows in the store because at that time there were no promoters in town that were grabbing bands like June of 44 or, I mean, Elliot Smith played in our store, right. Red House Painters. I mean, the list goes on and on. Neutral Milk Hotel played in the store. So on the one hand, I was seeing that here we are booking, you know, three, four shows a week in a record store without even the proper equipment. And, and, and you know, 100 people would cram in the store to watch these bands. Oh. And then at the same time, uh, I was never really interested in doing uh, display record displays on the wall. So I always had local art on the walls in the record store. And we got to be where we were booked out two years in advance for 30-day exhibitions. So I started thinking, oh my gosh, there's no outlet for these creative The demand young was too much. The demand was huge. And, and so I just want to pause and point out that our municipalities around the city they tend to think uh, competitively rather than thinking collaboratively. Mm. So we have Mesa Center for the Arts, Tempe Center for the Arts, the Herberger Theater Center. We have the Chandler Center for the Arts, the West Valley Center for the Arts. These are huge institutions. They play a critical role, sure, but we're so overbuilt on bricks and mortar for the giant theaters that you know they duke it out twice a year over Phantom of the Opera or Cats. Meanwhile, if you graduate with a degree in choreography from ASU, there's no professional 150 to 300 seat theater. So, wow. And you're talking you know, back then, obviously. You're not. That's you're, right. Things have grown, obviously, but yes, back Absolutely. in the 80s and 90s, yes. Right. And but so, not, not as many options. I call those places the stepping stones. And so, what Modified was was a stepping stone in an effort to keep more bright young people here. It, it enabled them to cut their teeth and build a career. Um, on a small theater space. Right, so we yes. had live music, film, the gallery openings, mm -hmm. um, any... And for people that don't know Modified, it's a it's a hole in the wall pretty much. You know sure, what I mean? It's yeah. a small place, I mean, I you know? Mean, we could barely hold 125 people or right. so. But again, you know, Fleet Fox played there. those needs, yeah. Arcade played there. Right. You know, Godspeed You Black Emperor. And so, you know, it was, it was truly for the music aficionado. We never had uh, liquor in there. And so... We had three to five performances a night, five to seven nights a week for 12 solid years. And it, uh, I was very, very lucky to be surrounded by um, other like-minded individuals. And, and uh, Roosevelt Road grew from the collaborative spirit of a bunch of young entrepreneurs that were just digging in, fixing up old buildings and doing creative stuff. Wow. Well, now it just became, you you made it in a full-on art gallery. Basically. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Why did you decide to move away? I'm sure you've answered this question before, but for those listening why yeah. did you decide to move away from that sure there were a few different reasons that we stopped doing live music um and they all kind of came to a head at the same time one was the types of bands that were coming to play they deserved a better experience <laughs> right people would say you should start selling alcohol but they don't realize that if you start selling alcohol then i would have had to install uh, the proper number of bathrooms, which would have taken up half the floor space. By the time we were done meeting code, we would have had room for about 15 people in that building, <laughs> right? It never would have worked. And, you know, we'd have like, I think one of the last shows, Will Oldham came through. Um, he wanted to play it modified, but he normally plays through, you know, 18 to 24 channels. And we had eight, 
Mm-hmm. And he deserves better than that. I mean, we had 200 people trying to cram into a show that holds 125 with mediocre equipment and no alcohol. And it's a disservice. Like people used to think, you know, God, that's you know pretty open of you. But it's a disservice mm-hmm. for a city the size of Phoenix to book an artist like Will Oldham in a place like Modified. And yet he was saying, I want to play there. I'm like, okay, so half of your fans are going to be turned away. And you're not going to sound that great. Um, and so it's fun up to a point, but then you start feeling sort of like a ball hog. And I knew that if I stopped doing shows that somebody else would open a venue because that's just how it works. And I, I knew it was a risk and a lot of people were super pissed off. But, you know, I was talking a lot to Charlie and we had been looking for another venue that was larger and I knew it was right around the corner. So there was that. The second thing that impacted us was we used to have this great relationship with the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. They would have their interns were required to get, uh, their students were required to get an internship. So we would have an endless flow of students who would just kill to get behind the board and have that kind of experience of mixing live sound, right? But as time went on, the students got more and more lazy and... I would just say a generation moved in that would be like, oh, sorry, I can't make it tonight. I have to pick up somebody at the airport. You know, they'd be like, why are you freaking out? And I'm like, (laughs) because the band is loading in, dude, and I was counting on you. So you experienced kind of a different mentality? Totally different. I mean, when Modified started, it was a community-driven space. It was never a profitable endeavor. It was, we're going to put in our own elbow grease. We're going to make this work. It was volunteer-run. And, and the sort of that spirit of volunteerism went away and I felt like I was standing there calling the same five people to help me out over and over again. And God then the bless final their heart, right? thing, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And th- those people have a special place in my heart forevermore. <laughs> they know who they are. Um, and then the final thing was, you know, just to, I, I would just say what I would call, you know, I'm in a podcast where I can say a shitty attitude by some of the musicians and the fans. You know, it's, it's not I, how many piss soaked rolls of toilet paper can you fish from behind the toilet before it's not funny anymore or or bands actually spray painting on the inside of the building you know it's just not cool so this was a mentality shift not just from like the kids the interns and stuff like that but from the talent totally it it just became uh sort of taken for granted and i felt like i was kind of standing there going i'm the only one that cares right so you know what i don't care anymore and uh Hmm. you know i do i care about phoenix a lot and i care about live you don't have much time in the day you know yeah it just it got to the point where i didn't want to do it anymore and uh and so we turned it we ripped the stage out i ripped it out uh with a couple of friends and (sighs) we turned it into just an art gallery And then fast forward in 2003, I started Local First Arizona and we were working out of my living room. And then after a while, we got free donated space from uh, Gateway Community College. And we had five people crammed in this little office with no windows. So tell people what Local First is, just so they know. Local First Arizona is a nonprofit organization focused on building a better Arizona. So we do that by focusing on culture, inclusive economy, and also just straight up economic development. New and improved ways of thinking about how the economy works and how we're going to build a better place that has more opportunities for everyone that lives here. So we we have four statewide offices now. We have a staff of about 25 and we, we run a number of different programs. And our current office is in the Modified Arts Building. So it is a gallery and an office space for Local First. I think I'm about to cut you off a little bit earlier. So go back a little bit. Um, so like, how do you go from like music to 
economic development. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. And that's a great question. And for me, it's a straight shoot because I spent my entire life battling big corporate nonsense uh, in the record store. I mean, mm. uh, a simple example would be street dates, right? Everybody knows what street dates are when a record comes out. We didn't used to have street dates until Wait, Best Buy. I don't know if I do market. know what street dates that's are. That's when a record comes out and release? everybody sells it on the same day. It's like the release date. Okay. We gotcha. didn't used to have that. Right. So a band would release an album and I'd get a box of them and I'd start selling them until Best Buy moved in the market and then the major label said, you can't sell it until this day. And that was largely because I was small and lean and mean. I could move fast and the big labels had to get it into their distribution center and ship it across the country. And so I always just ignored street dates. I mean, the, the bottom line is if you think you can sell me something and then prevent me from selling it, then sue me. And uh, they never did. And so I would always battle. Uh, and, and, and I mean, that's just the beginning of it. I mean, you look at Best Buy getting to buy stuff for below what, you know, I mean, they actually sell stuff right. for below what I could buy it for for a long time. And we used to have to fight the labels. One of my favorite stories is uh, when Discord Records um, out of D.C., they started implementing street dates. And I called them up and I was like, what? You guys, we've been values aligned for 20 years. Why are you doing this? And they said, because if we don't adhere to street dates, then Tower won't carry our CDs. The new Fugazi was coming out. And uh, <laughs> there will be towns that have no place for kids to buy our records. So... So I actually opened the box and I gave them all away um, mm -hmm. and I asked kids to come back and pay me the following Tuesday because technically I was just loaning them out and I wasn't You did what Radiohead before Radiohead did it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? Not not any kid let me down. They all, every single one of them came back and paid me. So I, I think That's amazing. has been, um, it's just been. Gosh, we could talk all night on that almost. You know? Yeah. Because there's so, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But so there you are and then, uh, so you are. In uh, modified, uh, you were switching just to the art gallery, and then, and then local first. Yes, so local first moved in about two years after we were just doing the art gallery, and I literally was looking for a building, looking, looking, looking for a building for local first, and I sat up bolt upright at like three in the morning and went, "Oh my god, you idiot! You have a building!" So we started looking at how could we make it suitable for the office space. And the gallery. So we had, we went over to Heckler Design. Uh, he's over on Grand Avenue and he designed these desks that when not in use, they you turn them upright and they, they go and do a little slot on the base and they just fold like over into the corner. Or a Murphy bed kind of, kind of, kind of a similar kind of concept. But anyway, yeah, yeah they, they stack over onto the side so that we can still have great uh, receptions. Gotcha. Okay, so, so um, what are some of the projects uh, that you're working on for Local First? Local. I mean, they vary, right? Oh, they're very, yeah. very diverse. In right, fact, yeah. they're so diverse that I think some people have a hard time following right. along. Yeah, totally. But when you're trying to 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 contribute to building a new economy, you have to take a multi-pronged approach, right? There has to be a lot of different ways. So one of the programs we started is called Fuerza Local, which is a Spanish business accelerator program. Okay. For traditionally marginalized community members, uh, they come to six months worth of business training uh, to help them grow a successful business. And then during the time they're with us, they participate in what's called a money pool. A money pool is where everybody in a family might pay into a kitty, and then everybody in the, in the, gets to take the kitty each, somebody gets to take the kitty each month. So if I had my car breakdown, I need $1,200 tomorrow, or I'm gonna lose my job, because I gotta get this car fixed. 
then I would call all my friends and family together and we would start a money pool. And that means that everybody puts $100 into a kitty and I would take the first position. I would get the $1,200 and then my cousin would get the next month and then my aunt would get the month after that. Everybody gets to pick what month they want. But I would have to continue paying into it for a whole year. So for centuries, this is the way that people around the world in third world countries have saved money. You're, so, not, you're not reinventing the wheel. This is something... That's right. Yeah. Right. So we uh, partnered with an organization called eMoney Pool. They've digitized it. So we put our students back to the Business Accelerator Program. We put them in pods of 12 and they save together. So they have to save making on-time payments for six months. They save $1,000. And they can choose how much they want to put it invest? So no, we require them because okay. yeah, they, they save $1,000 over, over six months. But each of your incubators do this basically, Absolutely. Right? Okay. And the reason we're doing that is because we're taking their payments and reporting them to Experion. So me and you sitting here talking today, you're thinking, why is that important, right? We're helping these folks earn a credit score for the first time in their lives. So you drive down the street and you see the payday lender and the auto. You think right. people are in there because they have bad credit. But it doesn't occur to us that they're in there because they have no credit and nobody ever took the time to explain them to them how, how credit works. So when they graduate from our program, they actually have a credit score and they can get entree into our partner credit unions like Desert Schools or Marisol Federal Credit Union and they can access capital at fair market rates rather than the predatory lenders. So that means that they can grow their business and actually have the oxygen they need to actually bring in new product or uh, bring in new, uh, you know, technology or whatever it is that they need. So it's giving them the tools, basically, because like you said, they didn't. Nobody told them to how to use the tools when they were growing That's up or right. whatever. That's right. And so it's this whole kind of like you know about the fish you know what i mean oh yeah we teach, teach them how to fish, fish yeah basically. we teach people how to fish yeah. so okay so that's fuerza and we have about 160 small businesses that have graduated from that wow. program they've gone on to create over 300 new jobs for other arizonans and it's transforming uh, the landscape here we we have to give everybody the opportunity to succeed so that's one program. Uh, in 2013, uh, we acquired the Arizona Rural Development Council. Okay. So we have two offices in urban areas, Phoenix and Tucson. And then we have two other offices that are in uh, rural areas. And uh, we work with uh, rural stakeholders to help build more opportunities out there across the state. Many people don't realize that Arizonans um, collectively spend about six and a half billion dollars a year every year vacationing in California. Mm. So imagine if we could just redirect 10% of that out into our rural communities, it would make a huge difference. Poverty in rural Arizona has increased 65% in the last 25 years. So vacationing, uh, going out to wine country, checking out what we have here in Arizona is a huge piece of what we do. Wow. Yeah. So, and then finally, I'll tell you, we are also working on uh, building a healthier food systems in Arizona. Most people don't think much about where their food comes from, but uh, here in Arizona, we, uh, last year, I think we, uh, we exported $2.8 billion worth of food, which sounds pretty good until you realize that we imported $3.2 billion worth of food. So that's a whole lot of growing tomatoes to sell them to somebody else <laughs> so that we can import somebody else's tomatoes, right? <laughs> it's not a system that is sustainable. It burns a lot of fossil fuels. And so we're trying to get more Arizona-grown tomatoes into Arizona-grown households. So. Cool. 
Yeah. Is that the new? Is that kind of your newest project, or has that been going on for a while now? Oh, uh, that's been going on for a while. We built a website that's called Good Food Finder AZ, okay. GoodFoodFinderAZ.com, and and uh, there's tons of uh, we have about uh, thirteen hundred food producers on that website. You can find out where farmers markets are, where CSAs are, all those kinds of things. So. Um, I think I might have used that before. I did not know it was you. Yeah, that's that's one of the. So a lot of people don't realize that we have a foundation. So there's Local First right. Arizona and there's Local First Arizona Foundation. So I started Local First in 2003 and I started the foundation in 2009. So the foundation actually runs the rural programming, gotcha. the food programming, and the business accelerator program. Okay. Yeah. And the the big the biggest thing that's been on the radar most recently for you that I saw was the Worth House. Yes, that happened. Uh, so like, and you were at Modified at the time. You were your your office, right? And you saw that this house was going to get torn down. The Worth House is a it's a house that's it's was built in 1911. It's which is like older than our state. Um, but they were going to tear it down. Yeah. And and you decided you wanted to save it, right? I did. So you know, I looked out my window at Modified for many many years, looking at that little old house and. Uh, the guy sold the land along with the land next to it to a big developer who's going to plan to put apartments in there. Ooh, and, more uh, those, right? Yeah. So when they announced they were going to tear it down, uh, I, I looked at some friends and we went out there with a tape measure uh, to measure like, okay, well, would this little house fit on the dirt lot that was just west of Modified? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people over the years thought I owned that lot back when we used to park on it for modify. I never owned it. For eight years, I tried buying it. And I finally was able to buy it. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with this dirt lot about you know six months before they were going to tear down the Worth House? Oh, really? So we went out there and we measured it and we decided that it would fit. So I called the owner and I said, he actually hung up on me the first time I talked to him. I, he hung up on me uh, because he thought, you know, here's this crazy woman that wants to save this old house. He didn't care about it. He kept calling it that decrepit house. And I kept saying, it's not decrepit. You know, like, <laughs> well, what do you want with it? I said, I don't know what I want with it. You know, I just want to know if, if, if I get it off of that land, what's it to you? So he wasn't going to, I don't think, until he realized that to demolish that house would actually cost him $10,000. So he could so give it to go, me right? for free right. or he could pay $10,000 to tear it down. So he ultimately decided sure, to give it to me. Sure, now we're best friends, right? No, yeah. 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 And, uh, oh my God, it was such an ordeal. Uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat, but I hired uh, John McCullough of McCullough Move Home, which is this old guy who spent his whole life moving old houses. And... Um, he started the process and I mean, we're talking about raising the, you put metal bars under it and you raise it about a quarter of an inch a day. Uh, so it took quite a long time and he got sick and fell into a coma in the middle of the project. So here I am halfway invested in moving this house and the owner is losing his mind. You say, you lied. You said you would move this thing. And there's nobody else in the state that can move this house. And I just kept thinking, oh, it's got to come around. It's got to come around. What's going to happen? So Mr. McCullough emerges from a coma after like three weeks, doesn't even remember that he was in a coma. And two days later, he's down on the job site working again. Wow. It was crazy. So um, we got the house moved and we got it lowered onto its new foundation. How long did it take to get it up on the things? Oh my gosh. The whole process was about six months, I think. But it just took a day to get it across the road. Oh, it took like an hour and a half. I mean, I was like all of that work to get to a point where they just kind of went boop, 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 Thank God you're only across the street. But you have to, you have to, yeah, you have to close down the street. You had to have APS out there to lift the utility wires. I mean, it is a big deal. 
uh, but it was fascinating to watch. Totally. It. Yeah. When you think of all the houses that have, you know, great houses that have gone away and the great structures and stuff like that, what are you going to do? What do you, what do you, uh, well, first of all, you have a fundraiser uh, campaign, right? I don't anymore. Okay. I did for a long time. It was up there. I think we raised about $23,000, okay. which was enormously helpful. Right. Yeah. The whole project has been about almost 200000 though. Okay. And yeah. is there a, is there a timeline on it? Or are you going to try Like, are you just kind of doing things when you can do it type uh, stuff? No, I think we're going to be moving in within the next four to five weeks. No kidding. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, we haven't been down there. We just had the exterior painted. Okay. Uh, the, uh, we're, it's all drywalled and... and uh, textured on the inside all the original uh window framing is back in all that original wood uh the bricks have been restored we had a couple of cracks that came up the fireplace on the inside it needed some repair okay. uh, we moved some walls um one thing to know about the Worth House is the owners uh, had changed hands so many times that there was a group that was having raves in the lot behind it. And so there were actually nine urinals inside the Worth House when I bought it. Or well, that's I didn't bizarre, buy it when yeah. I got it. Uh, and that's because they were pretty much just using it as a bathroom. So it had broken glass, spray paint galore, nine urinals. So you basically got the, the structure. You just have to take, you have to pay for all the, all the, the oh yeah, the repairs and stuff like oh, that. Oh right? yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it was just crazy. So, but we were able to say there's two little interior uh, glass, stained glass windows that are going to go back in place. Uh, you know, the old fashioned right. shelves that had the doors that were glass. The there's two okay. of those yeah. that we saved. So there's some, there's some real treasures in there. Nice. Beautiful. And that's going to be your home base, basically, for local forest? Or? It will be, uh, joined with a courtyard. So we'll have people on both sides of the courtyard uh, for okay. local first. Uh, in addition, we'll have uh, Roosevelt Row Welcome Center in there. So Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's going to be great. There you have it right here. We'll, so we'll, uh, you got about a month. About a month. Uh, now that I've said okay. that, it'll be six I months. I know, right? Hey, exactly, it'll be about yeah. a month, yes. That is so awesome. Okay, so. So I think what's interesting is is that, you know, Opening modified in the late 90s, and then uh, many of us remember how rough the neighborhood was back then. Peter Reagan was running uh, Metropophobia, but there were a lot of vacant lots and a lot of abandoned buildings down there. There was a hubcap shop and a liquor store otherwise. And then watching it turn into one of the best arts districts in the country, top 10 arts districts in the country, and the American Planning Association gave it one of the best neighborhoods in America. And then moving beyond that into what we have now, which is, you know, blading really great old buildings and replacing them with... Uh, uninteresting buildings. Very uninteresting apartments. I, I call them angry apartments um, because they really, they don't interact well with the street. Uh, you're looking at a bunch of, uh, you know, empty elliptical machines on what used to be the most walkable street downtown. So... The fact that Modified in the Worth House will remain there on the corner it is to me a symbol of what used to be in that neighborhood. And I, I am in the process of doing a 30-year easement with the city of Phoenix, which means that even if I die, nobody can tear that down. And there are people who, you know, I've had people like, that's the stupidest thing, you should sell it, cash out. Uh, nobody cares. You should never have invested that. I mean, I've, I've heard all of it. But I would just say that then I think that you don't know what it's like to fight for something, to really fight for something and to believe in it. Well, so that that How does that make you will... feel when, like, if that didn't happen, you know, you have very few uh, original old school buildings in the Roosevelt. Like, it's a completely different place. 
you know, sure. than it was 20 years ago or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, there's the two blocks left. And is that is that kind of what moved you to do, to just be like, wait, I got to try and do something about this house? Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the city of Phoenix, you know, generally, if you can call the city as a, a thing that has character, it, it generally has been very harsh looking at our past and it's it's been very hungry for growth as if measuring density is the ultimate measurement device and i i just i think that density minus good design is just it's just a new way of doing suburban sprawl and it density doesn't without heart yeah it doesn't you know? create the sense of place that makes people proud of their hometown that makes them want to live here build a company grow their family and the older buildings you know every every city that has done a better job of protecting their older building stock is not only performing better in terms of attracting knowledge economy workers they're doing better in real estate performance. They're doing better in inclusive economy work, meaning there's more diverse opportunities for people to participate at every level of a socioeconomic status. I mean, guess what? Cities don't work when they're homogenous. You know, they, they just don't. If, if all of us earned over $100,000 a year, then those of us that, you know, that, that do the real work, they, we'd be gone. Like cities don't function if we don't have people at all uh, ends of the spectrum. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, that the, the Worth House is a symbol that old matters, that small matters, that details matter, that good design matter. And uh, it, it is a beacon back to what Roosevelt Row was at one time. Well said. And even before that, it's a beacon back to, you know, I mean, Felix Worth built that house. It's 1,100 square feet. He was the first letter carrier in Phoenix. He moved out here in 1910. He and his wife, Mary, raised six children in 1,100 square feet. And uh, I got to, I was fortunate enough to meet the one remaining daughter. She just passed away a couple of months ago, but she lived to be in her 90s. And uh, she grabbed my hand really fiercely and said, why would anybody want to tear our house down? And I said, I don't know, but I'm not going to let that happen. So, you know, you have... A deep love for community and diversity. Um, where do you think that comes from? For you, you know, justice. Like- it comes from justice. I have a really heightened sense of justice, and I, I don't like when I see things that are unfair or you know a bunch of people standing around saying, "Hey, you guys ought to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps." When you know, you you don't even have the boots. You know, like uh, I think that we there's a lot of uh, systemic racism and uh, systemic. I guess just systems generally that place people at a, at a disadvantage. And the thing is, is we all do better when we all do better. Uh, this country is not doing well because only some of us are doing well. Do you worry now and where we are right now in terms of that? Like, because we see that it seems we're going more and more to that place, you know? Yeah. I'm horrified by what I see right now because uh, well, for a few reasons. Uh, policies continue to favor bigger is better, and, and that is not true. It's not working for the majority of Americans. You know, we, uh, the middle class has fallen down, 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 and that's because 
corporate entities continue to merge, merge, merge. And so we have fewer choices. Nobody's enforcing antitrust laws. And all of our money gets spent with companies that, that the profits go to pay distant shareholders. You know, we need to become more empowered and think about how we're spending our money. And we need to uh, spend money with each other and all boats will rise. Uh, it's just that we forgot we have the power. We live in a consumer-driven economy. Uh, and if Is we, that a good thing? It's a good thing. Okay. It is a good thing because that means that we're in the driver's seat. It's just that we, we go home at night and scratch our heads and wonder where all the jobs went. Well, if we spent our money like we wanted to create jobs, we could do that, you know? And yet uh, most people choose not to. Hmm. Most people complain about, uh, about the rich getting richer, and yet their own spending habits are causing the rich to get richer. So... Uh, we're buying ourselves broke. See, that's what I, my next thing would be. Well, is it good that we just want to buy things? You know what I mean? Like, no, I don't need. I don't think that people need to buy more than is necessary. But when I say a consumer-driven economy, that that can be the basics. The way we buy our food actually matters. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that we just need to consume, consume, consume. Endless consumption is ridiculous and unnecessary and doesn't benefit anyone. It certainly damages the earth. But what I, what I mean by that is our basic necessities. If we chose to spend our money with other local companies, uh, then we would create more jobs and keep more dollars recirculating right here. So I'll give you a few examples. When you spend $100 at a locally owned business, you're going to get 45 of those dollars are going to stay and recirculate right here in this community. And if you spend the same $100 with a big national chain, only $13 stays. And the reason that is, is I use Starbucks as an example, right? We could have 30,000 Starbucks locations across America, and they're still only going to want to support, they're only going to support one graphic design firm they're going to support one website development firm. They're going to support one accounting firm. And those are all in the state of Washington. So they don't support jobs right here. You 30,000 independent coffee shops support 30,000 graphic designers to do a logo or 30,000 web, website developers had a gig or 30,000 accountants had a client. That's how you keep dollars moving through the economy. And a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just economy of scale. Well, no, it's not. It's not cheaper to buy a latte at Starbucks. So the reality is we can choose how we want to spend that money. And the way we make those choices actually can create job opportunities for everyone around us. So what we're seeing in the U.S. right now is there's two camps of people that are, are forming. There is the camp that is focused on convenience and the camp that is focused on relationships. And being uh, somebody that supports locally owned businesses, I choose relationships. I want to know who I'm doing business with. I want to know the farmer that grew my food. I want to know the owner of the store that I go to. Whereas some people are just choosing convenience and they shop on Amazon. Uh, Do you think we're moving? I mean, that's another thing. I, it seems like we're moving to more and more to that, to that convenience that you're talking about and away from relationships. Uh, I don't think so. So uh, there's a new study that just came out that showed that who's dying in the middle are the chain stores that actually don't offer convenience or relationships. So th there's a big, huge list that just came out of all the big chain stores that have closed up shop. And I mean, when Walmart's closing 200 locations in a year, you know that patterns are changing, right? So... There was a study that just came out that showed if you spend $10 million at independent businesses in America, you're going to create and sustain 110 jobs. If you spend the same $10 million on Amazon, you create and sustain 14 jobs. So yeah, sure. We all think that, oh, how convenient all this stuff comes to my door, but it's actually not a sustainable model for the U.S. economy. And so um, it's just a matter of time before people start to wake up to that fact. And so there's a big article that I keep referencing that came out that showed... Um, 
Online sales are now still accounting for less than 5% of total sales. That's about right, yeah. Yeah, it's like 4.6%. Yeah. Which and, is weird. Yeah, because because everybody's the media, talking. the media keeps telling us everybody's buying online. Well, it turns out a lot of people aren't. But the reality is a lot more people are. Those sales are increasing uh, year over year. But the reality is... At the same time, in this article, they said, wow, but you know what? The independent businesses are actually growing at a faster rate than the chain stores. So the quickest growth you're seeing in online sales, second is independent retailers, and third are the chain stores. So, you know, there's more bookstores opened up last year than any time in the last 10 years. More record stores have opened up in the, la in the last year than in the last 10 years. Um, more and more coffee shops are, are opening up that are independently owned. So... So it's it's both and. And right. who's falling and failing in the middle are the big chains that don't offer relationship and they don't offer convenience. You know, we've talked about you grew up here. You, you're, you're not going anywhere, I guess. No, I'm you're rooted pretty here. pretty entrenched. I'm rooted yeah. here. There are yeah. days I get really mad at Phoenix, but yeah. uh, but I'm staying. What are you yeah. going to do? Yeah. Well, you've done a lot. But like, so like when you look at you know, your time here in Arizona, which is your whole life, basically. like Except for nine months. Nine months. Yes. yes. But like, like really like... How do you see it have grown in your time here? How do you see it's changed in a good way, you know? Absolutely. So when I went to high school, I think 12 of us from the graduating class, big graduating class, I think 12 of us stayed and went to ASU. More people went to U of A and even more people left the state. Really? And so we've always had this problem of losing our bright young people. And I think that's starting to change. I think now ASU is a world-class university. Back then it was a party school. I think that we are, you know, I mean, look at the culinary scene. It's off the hook. We could compete with New York tomorrow with the talent that we have here in chefs. Um, so we are growing into ourselves. And I think that uh, I, I'm super proud of how far we've come. And and by the way, we've done it ourselves without a whole lot of outside support. You know, we were, we were the whipping boy in the media because of our politics for so right. long that like, the James Beard Awards have completely skipped Arizona all the way back going, I think 2009 right. was the last time anybody in this state was considered for an award. And yet, uh, so we've done it on our own. And now they're calling going, you know, we're actually hearing a lot yeah. about what's happening in Phoenix. And I'm like, yeah, we're killing it right now. Right. Uh, I think the music scene is, is booming. Uh, we're becoming more of a live music town than we ever were before. I mean, all of those things are starting to change and and there's significant changes because the more we love on ourselves instead of hating on ourselves, mm -hmm. the more people start to listen and uh, and go, wow, you know, there really is some cool stuff. We have to work a little bit harder because two thirds of Arizonans came from somewhere else. So we have to convince a lot of people that we've got some great stuff going on here, but, uh, but we're doing it and we're doing a good job of it right now. Now take that and then go 10, 20 years from now. What do you see? What do you want? Yeah. So what I hope for is that we continue to to honor the importance of the fine grain stuff, that the small independent businesses actually do matter, that old houses and old buildings actually do matter, and that they can be blended right along with the new. Uh, I hope we continue to honor that. I hope we continue to use our uh, government spending uh, to support Arizona companies to grow our economy here. I will say that I have my eye on it because 
we could still play our card, our cards totally wrong and uh, head in the wrong direction. I mean, the, we have to figure out how to get these crappy apartment developers yeah. to be held to higher design standards. I mean, you can, you shouldn't be allowed. Is to that a build... warning sign to you? All these apartments and stuff like that. And... Uh, well designed. I like density. Well designed apartments. Go go for it. I love it. Um, but what we have are people that are designing apartments that you actually, the only way you can exit is to go into the parking garage. Right, right. What is that message, right? How many times do you go to a big city and, and, and there's vibrancy because Certainly. people are coming right out of the stairwell onto the street. Right. If you're cre- you're designing a building that you can only exit in the parking garage, you're basically saying we are a car culture that's never going to change and the coffee shop in the bottom of this building is never going to survive because you can't get to it unless you get in your car and drive around or you walk all the way around the building where there's no shade i mean poor design it needs to be stopped if we're going to build a great city these guys need to be stopped what can the city do to protect against some of these things that you're talking about sure so um the kind of things the government can do i'll give you an example i worked to overhaul the adaptive reuse program Mm -hmm. for the city of phoenix for about eight years so I worked my way from, you know, gadfly to co-chair of the uh, of the development advisory board for the city of Phoenix. So we were directly advising council on building code policy. Uh, and so it used to be very difficult to open up a wine bar in an old house. And we uh, we were able to encourage them to adopt the international existing building code and uh, adopt policies and procedures that would make it easier for an independent entrepreneur to open up a building, open up a business in an older building. So a lot of people think that, that. yeah, so a lot of people think that, you know, the city of Phoenix just miraculously, everybody started opening up businesses. No, (laughs) we streamlined it and uh, we made it much simpler. We saved the businesses an average of four and a half months and $16,000 each to get their doors open. And so I think we have about 85 businesses opened up in the city center after we changed that policy. So we need policies that honor the small and the old if we're going to build a great city. The policies all honor the big and the new, and we need to find a balance between the old and the small and the big and the new. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you for being on the show. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I think what I like most about Kimber Lanning's story is that it all made sense. By that, I mean is that All the pieces of her life seemed to fit together in a way that seemed really natural. Stinkweeds was something she wanted to do, and she worked her ass off, and she did it. She saw the demand for smaller touring groups and local bands needing a smaller venue to play, so she opened Stinkweeds to them, and then eventually opened Modified Arts to them as well. Again, she used what she had and made Modified Arts her home base for local first. Though the transitions may have been bumpy, they seemed organic to me. People often say they're not sure what they want to do with their life. I have this belief that if you search for something, you'll eventually find it, and you may even affect change along the way. This is going to sound kind of strange, but you don't even necessarily need to know what you're searching for. But if you just take action towards something, anything, it'll get you closer to wherever it is you need to be. Hell, you, maybe you'll find that what you were searching for all along was not what you really wanted in the first place, and that's okay. That's better than where you were to begin with. But without the search, you got nothing. And that search will lead you to the through line. And then, all of a sudden, you realize you're in the place you need to be. 
If you would like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And by the way, sticking with our theme of local, we feature local musical artists on each episode of our podcast. So, of course, we asked Kimber Lanning which local band she wanted to play out the episode, and she told us North Brother Island, and that's a band of one of her fellow Stinkweeds employees, Dario Miranda. And don't forget to keep your ear to the ground about the Worth House. And thank you all so very much for listening to our 18th episode of On the Grid. Just a man with charms of gold.